Welcome to this week's Eccentric Minute, brought to you by Eccentric. This week's Eccentric Minute, we're going to review one of our foundational single leg exercises, and that is the K-Box Split Squat. Just like with the squat, guys, make sure you got that tether taunt when you're at full extension, and set yourself a counterbalance. Here we're going to use the barbell on the rack. Sink it down just like a regular split squat, chest tall, and drive through that front foot. I really like that back plate there to take tension off that back toe. As we progress forward, that's going to be big time to help us even keep our weight forward more. As we increase intensity and decrease volume, we're also typically cutting depth, therefore increasing transfer when we're looking at stopping power at a greater height. Guys, give this one a shot. I'm sure that this is one that you're going to find some great carryover for your athletes. I really hope you enjoyed this week's Eccentric Minute. Make sure you check them out at eccentric.com to find out everything you need about the K-Box and the K-Pulley. Being a strength and conditioning professional requires constant pursuit of better knowledge, better methods, and better means. But what if there was a place where strength and conditioning coaches could learn from some of the most innovative practitioners in the world, such as Jeff Moyer, Lachlan Wilmot, William Wayland, James the Thinker Smith, and Kirwenham Flat. Well, you can find multiple lectures from each of these top-level coaches and a few lectures and examples from yours truly as well, all in the Strength Coach Network. The Strength Coach Network is going to bring you well over a hundred different lectures from some of the top practitioners in the world to be your one-stop shop for your continuing education and professional development. So hop on over to strengthcoachnetwork.com slash today and get your 48-hour trial for only a dollar. That's strengthcoachnetwork.com slash CVASPS to get your 48-hour trial for only a dollar. I look forward to seeing you in the Strength Coach Network. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today, guys, I have the absolute pleasure of getting to sit down and discuss the role of variability in the training programs with athletes with Dana Agar Newman. Guys, after a real quick intro, Dana's going to dive right into what drove him to look at the role of variability in training, including where are some instances that it could be leading to more harm than good. Uh, And this is going to include how they evaluated the athletes to make sure that there was consistent progress and how this led into their idea of like gas pedal, brake pedal, in order to make sure that everything was moving forward when they were trying to develop these athletes. Uh, He then starts talking about how this transferred from the world of rugby into the divers, and how this will impact their taper to really build confidence with the young people he gets to work with. And then we run down the rabbit hole of the idea of holding some tools back, right? So we're not throwing everything at them all at once, so that you have the ability to improve on things later. And we kind of eliminate those ideas of these like kind of stuck plateaus that athletes get into. Guys, we finish off talking about this whole idea of where the four-week block came from and and why maybe it's not the best thing for athletes and why this idea of long-term planning may not be in our best interest either. This is really an awesome talk, guys. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Let's get right to it. Dana, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. No problem. It's my pleasure. Yeah, man. I'm excited for this. We were just talking a little bit off camera, and I think that... uh, I think that this is something that it, it actually is probably going to end up being on my thoughts Monday rant about the same time this comes out too, because it's a, I have questions too to roll with what we were talking about, but let, let's let people know who you are, where you're at and, and how you got there. Uh, so I'm Dan Agar Newman. I'm the lead strength conditioning coach out at the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific. 
how I got here is uh, my original plan was to be a high school teacher and coach track and field. Uh, and I came out to Victoria to take a, a volunteer coaching gig, saw there's an internship uh, available. And so I was coaching track and field and interning as a strength and conditioning coach. And then it got to a point where, you know, strength and conditioning started making money doing it. And I realized I was getting the same enjoyment and I was getting paid a hell of a lot more than an SNC or a athletics coach. So I made the switch full time to um, SNC. So the first sports really that I got uh, working in was uh, rugby 15s, uh, men's team leading up to the World Cup. Um, you know, the first thing I was told when I got a paying job was the guys get faster, you get a, you have a job. The guys don't get faster, you don't have a job. Uh, which, you know, we probably wouldn't say to a beginner anymore because we're HR would probably rip our heads off. But it, you know, it was actually great for me to hear that because, you know, you realize that those athletes have one shot. You know, you got to do all you can to to make them better. So yeah, I started off as a, an intern at the Canadian Sport Institute, had some great mentors, uh, Tyler Goodall, Matt Barr. Um, and, you know, I just, you know, went from an intern to a strength conditioning coach. Uh, and now I'm the lead of the department. So I've been here since uh, 2010. And Victoria is a pretty special place if you've ever been out here. Um, also big hunter. So, you know, 45 minutes from work, I can be out hunting bears and deer and uh, anything else so it's it's pretty good that's awesome brother and it's a it's a cool story to hear how you got out there and now with the athletes that you're doing there's some cool interesting novel might not be the right word but i guess that's all i can pop in my head right now way of ways that you're handling these these athletes yeah totally i'd, I'd say probably the right word is it's a it's an adaptation of a, a system that's you know been around for a number of years um and it, it's a system that I've kind of, you know, started applying to athletes based on necessity. Um, so if you're familiar with track and field, there's a world-renowned throws coach, Anatoly Bondarchuk. Uh, he's he's based in BC now, which isn't uh, up in Canada, which is not too far from where I'm based. Um, there's guys like Derek Evely who I, I can contact as a resource. Um, so I got familiar with this system, and I had a chance to apply an adaptation of it to some rugby athletes and had great success and, you know, these were chronically injured athletes um, that, you know, out of necessity, I had to try something different with them and, you know, they responded to it um, and, you know, it really opened up my eyes to the power of variability in training and also the lack of variability in training and how important consistency and small doses of things all the time is to athletes. Yeah, dude. And I love that because obviously... You know, being a guy who studied under Yesis and having a connection with Dr. B, I, uh, I understand exactly what you're talking about. But let's talk about these two athletes. Let's talk about what they were dealing with that brought you to this point and then why you decided that this was going to end up being the direction you took. Yeah, so these two athletes specifically, um, they were chronically injured and you know in r rugby sevens it's a it's a game where you know there's there's a high running volume uh there's a lot of physical contact uh but these weren't you know acute injuries these were chronic injuries like shin splints and you know one of these athletes was uh you know speed power machine her, her mom was actually in ben johnson's training group back in the day um so it gives you an idea she's a she's a purebred sprinter um you know, I think she cleans over 100 kilos now, you know, triple broad jumps, 850. So it's it's not bad. Um, and this was when she was like out of high school. So she's she's a pretty powerful girl. And 
these athletes just were never healthy. And so I had to take a different approach with them. Uh, so, so what I decided was, okay, well, we're going to do, you know, small doses all the time. And what we decided on is uh, a three-day rotation around the rugby schedule where they come in and they do a control test, which in this case was a counter movement jump. Uh, if I got the green light on that, uh, and it was really complex, I just took uh, a rolling average from the previous block of training. If they're jumping above that, we'd start a three-day um, cycle. Uh, they do uh, a speed session followed by a strength session. Day two was a conditioning session. Day three was either a speed or a speed endurance session, uh, and then followed by another strength session, then a day off, come in, take the control test, said they were good to go. We start that three-day rotation again. And we just keep rolling that three-day rotation over and over again until they were no longer adapting. And when they were no longer adapting, we'd offload them, give them a little break, and then change up the exercises, and they'd start training again. Um, and, you know, they, they were responding to it. And it was good because the exercises we choose or chose, I should say, were were all measurable for the most part, and they could see themselves improving, which increased their buy-in. Um, and so it was actually quite interesting. You know, the one girl was a bubble player, and, you know, she ended up making the squad that won Olympic medal. Um, after that season, you know, we debriefed it, and we said, you know, you've been healthy now for six months. Do you want to change your training up and join the rest of the team? Um, for what I'd consider general training. And, you know, they thought about it for a little bit and they said, you know, no, we want to keep doing this. And, you know, bear in mind, these athletes were training for 28 days in a row at one point. And as a coach, I was kind of hoping they'd want to join the rest of the team because I hadn't had a day off either. Uh, but you know what, it, it just opened my eyes to the power of variability and also the, the power of, um, you know, minimizing the amount of variables in your, your training program. Because the more complex you make it, the harder it is to see what's going on. Um, you know, and I, you know, I was a pole vault coach, and I, I use the analogy: it's like pole vault standards. If you are moving your pole vault standards around all the time, you're adjusting a variable to the athlete's jump, which is another variable, which is going to lead to an even more variable outcome. So, if you can minimize the amount of variables in your training program, it's easier to see what is working and what's not working. A hundred percent. So then now. Moving forward, how is this going to impact what you're doing with the uh, the rest of the squad? Yeah, so after the Olympics, I switched sports, and uh, one of the sports I moved to was diving. And I've got um, one of the athletes had been at the institute for seven years, and um, when I started working with her, same thing, she was injured. Uh, and it's actually kind of neat because I worked with her years before I started working with rugby. And so it's kind of cool to now be working with her at the tail end of her career when she's trying to uh, make this Olympics in Tokyo. And we've implemented this approach now and been running it for a, a couple of years. And, you know, it's the same thing where, you know, you you just keep your program standard. You you be very careful with the variability in your programs and you, you wait for that athlete to respond to the training program. You look what at, uh, exercises are working for that that athlete. And, you know, when you change a program, you, you keep track of those exercises that work for that athlete. And then when you have a major competition, you put those exercises back in the program and the athlete gains confidence. Um, so it's something I'm still using to this day. Um, it's nice because diving is a smaller group. Uh, as far as athletes that are have a good shot at qualifying for the Olympics, I've got two in the group I work with. And then the rest are Grand Prix level, junior level um, athletes. But it's nice because it's a small group, so you can really dial in what you're doing with them. I love that because I think, too, 
that's something that I, I should probably be better at is you're talking about exercises that work for them and then revisiting those like things when you're dealing with taper athletes. And that's something I haven't thought of. I think that's a brilliant idea. But then even more so now, looking at it as you move forward, your primary evaluation was always jumping. Do you yeah. see that with the field sport athlete moving more towards the, the some sort of sprint change of direction evaluation? Yeah, you got to be uh, – so, I, I, you know, we say what we do in the gym is specific, but, like, let's be honest, it is it is general. <laughs> uh, but there are some KPIs that we know that high-level performers have that low-level performers don't have. And so being very clear of what you're trying to address and also being very clear of what are the limits of what you can address in the gym. Uh, so you, you take rugby sevens, for instance, you know, sprinting speed is – a, a very important quality. If you look at the GPS data, you will lose that in it because it's it's all boiled down to averages. But if you get a video of all the tries in the season, I've done this multiple times, speed might happen. So an athlete might hit 95% of their max speed, you know, one or two athletes, three athletes a game. But it, when it does happen, it's in a critical moment in the game. So you can say, well, speed is a very important you know, variable for rugby sevens. Well, what are other critical variables? Well, restarts. So the athletes have to have a high, you know, single leg vertical jump to be able to regain that ball in possession, fending. So there, there's certain things you can start to boil down, like, you know, vertical jump, you know, acceleration, max velocity, uh, repeat speed that you can, you know, start to track and see is your programming improving those variables. Um, with diving, you know, I, I use um, a series of different jumping tasks to guide my programming. Um, so what I do with my divers is I'll do a counter move jump uh, to uh, compare to a squat jump, which gives me my eccentric utilization ratio. I do a force velocity profile, which is a series of jumps at different loads to give me an idea of whether or not this athlete needs to work on force or velocity. I do a counter move jump with arm swings, and I compare that to the counter move jump without arm swings. Uh, that gives me an idea of upper lower body coordination. And from there, that can give me some insight and help me tease out, you know, what direction I need to take the training. And then I'll also look at asymmetries uh, right to left because I've got a dual force plate set up that I run the athletes through. Uh, and that will give me an idea whether or not I do, you know, more bilateral or unilateral work with that um, athlete. And then I'll also do isometric mid-thigh pulls, which isn't as important, but it gives me a, an easy way to assess, you know, you can call it max strength. Um with those divers. I love that brother. I, I think that that's great, especially because in that sport, what's really weird is you're trying to push off of other than platform. Cause that's a whole other thing. Yeah. That's just insane. Um, but like the idea of pushing off a board that's already pushing you and to look at how often they are really pushing with one side more than the other. Yeah, and so what you'll find is those springboard divers, They, if they haven't done single leg work, they'll probably have a pretty big asymmetry. Cleans up really quickly, though, if you, you put in some single leg work or you put them in uh, on the force plates and you get them to squat, you know, do a bilateral movement, but give them some, uh, some, some visual look at uh, so they can see when they're pushing more one leg or the other leg. Uh, like those asymmetries will clean up fairly quickly as long as there's not a, an injury that's driving them. Uh, it's just something that you, you got to address in the in the weight room, and you can clean it up. Um, and I, and I, I don't think of asymmetries. I've changed a little bit on them. Is 
I, I think that you have a strong leg and you have a leg that, you know, has a lot of potential versus one leg's weak. So it's a subtly different way of thinking about it. But these are athletes that train full time. Both legs are strong. They have a real strong leg and they have a strong leg that has the opportunity to be strong. That makes sense. A hundred percent. I mean, it's yeah. not like, well, they're one of the few sports that actually could have had some sort of a crazy impact that it would maybe make them yeah. uneven. But, yeah. you know, knock wood, I mean, if they're training for the Olympics, you would hope that they haven't had a crash like that. Yeah, well, a lot of them will at some point. Uh, like, you know, if those falls from the 10 years, you over-rotate, um, you know, you, you can't end up in a hospital. <laughs> Uh, one of my girls actually is uh, a high diver, uh, so she jumps from 20 meters. So you think 10 meter platforms is crazy? Uh, you know the the 20 meters is nuts when you see the videos of that. Um, but you know it's it's a collision sport diving, and you know physics. You know one of the things that I'm trying to address with those divers, especially the platform ones, is body mass. Right? It's momentum. The more you weigh, the harder your collision with the water and the, the more momentum you have when you hit the water. And if you're trying to prevent injuries, well, if you can be at a healthy weight, um, you know, the potential of injuries drops. Now I got a, a selfish question since you do a lot of work with divers. How often are you dealing with head injuries? Injuries? Uh, I had a neck injury. Uh, so I've been back with diving now for three years. And the only thing I've had is a neck injury, which, you know, it can present as a head injury. Yeah, and, you know, that's something that's, you know, we've been able to, the com most common injuries I have is, I'd say, overuse knees, because uh, they do a lot of jumping in the gym, and they do a lot of jumping at the pool. So what I try to do in the gym is we're either doing jumping with load or jumping at less than body weight, not doing exactly what they're doing at the pool. So you're, you're trying to s stimulate right, versus simulate what they're doing at the pool. Um, so I'd say knees are probably the, the number one. Well, I know they are because I've got the stats. Uh, other ones that I will get is some uh, wrist um, stuff, especially the platforms, and especially with the younger divers. Uh, so when they, they move to the 10-meter, you got to be careful with the, the volumes. Um, and so things like cleans, you also just got to make sure they have that mobility in the wrists uh, because if they don't and you're jumping into cleans and – you know, the, the wrists are getting pissed off in the weight room and then they go dive and they're getting pissed off at, at the diving pool. Uh, it's a little bit of a recipe for disaster, but, you know, you can give athlete mobility in the wrists and strengthen the wrists so that they can clean. You just need to be aware to keep an eye on it. No doubt. You know, I thought it was funny. So in episode 23, I had Rhett Larson on and we talk a lot about diving because obviously his time in China, he did a lot with that. Mm -hmm. and, and where he saw the most with knee issues was because of how many times they climbed the ladder. Oh, really? Yeah. Which is yeah, interesting. Have, yeah. I, have, I actually haven't looked at that, um, but I could tell you ours go up the stairs quite a few times. Like, you know, they can do 60 dives in a session. And then you add on dry land bef beforehand. Like it's, it's a high, high volume sport and it's a lot of collisions. Um, but it's a great sport to work with. It's, it's, a, it's literally a speed power sport. Like the athletes are trying to jump high, which does have an impact on, um, you know, springboard, um, you know, 
there's a critical level you need to jump on the platform. Uh, they, they have to go from short to long and long to short really quickly. Um, so those are all things we can clean up in the gym. And then the other thing too is then shoulders, they need to have you know good range to the shoulders and T-spine and they need to be strong in the shoulders and T-spine. Not necessarily when they have a good entry, but when they have a bad entry so that they can control it and you know save that entry. Yeah, and I think too that's something that's a unique challenge and a benefit of the sport is that it's scored so differently. But it's a good way to put it. Yeah, at least like with the women I get to work with, they're very open to not just listening, but like constructively being part of the entire program. Because, mm-hmm. like, I mean, I don't know of many strength and conditioning coaches that are like, oh, yeah, I, I know exactly, first of all, what those numbers mean in your dive. Second of all, like, why there's a letter at the end and why some have four numbers and others have six numbers or whatever it might be. You know, so, like, their input, at least for me, is arguably the most of any of the athletes that I get to work with. Mm-hmm. And they're also hyper aware of their body, their movements, because, you know, it's a it's a very movement based sport where, you know, they're very precise with what they have to do. Um, and so they're, they're great athletes to work with. You know, you give them a cue and boom, they pick it up like that. So then and also the coaches have addressed a lot of the issues that we typically have to deal with with our, our field sport athletes before we even see them in the weight room. They have mobility. They have a decent level of strength. Um, you just need to be careful with the novel stimulus of the weight room when you, you first introduce them into the weight room. But, you know, they are, they are great athletes to work with. So now just kind of bringing it back full circle a little bit and talking about those two younger athletes who had the chronic issues and going back to more of a repetitive model. Mm-hmm. Many people would argue that the cause of these overuse injuries is the repetitive situations. But you found that those alleviate when you keep from the stimulus being novel consistently. Do you yeah, feel so, that this is something that we should be looking at a bit more when it comes to possibly bringing about a decrease in some of these problems that are chronic in nature? Mm-hmm. Well, with the system I had with rugby, there was, there was a gas pill and a break, which was that control test on the Monday. And I think that was part of the part of why it worked with those two athletes. Uh, the other thing too is, you know, training, training protects us from injury. Yeah. Gabbitt's kind of getting raked over the coals right now. If you, if you read journal articles, uh, but like, let's be honest, you, if you, you build up a tolerance to stuff, if you do it now where it becomes an issue is if the amount of what you're doing, your body is not prepared to do it. So the other thing with, you know, the bonder Chuck system is, you're not taking things to max very often, right? It's usually at you know seventy percent, eighty percent of what you call a, a one RM if you're doing you know squats, uh, for example. So it's not you know the intent is high all the time, but the 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 load is not high. The absolute you know load on the athletes. So I think that's the other reason why I was able to protect those athletes from injury as well. Um, cause the, they were able to maintain their technique while they were doing the movements. And, you know, they had that, that, that small window of, you know, available resources that they could rely on 
uh, always available to them if you know they were slightly out of position um, and you know needed to save a lift or uh, something along those lines. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. And I love that. And I love the fact that it, again, is all based upon some sort of are they improving and are they able to adapt to the trust? Yeah, we need we need to gear our programs around the athletes' adaptations. Because uh, too often, I think, we, we give the athletes a program, we, we assume they adapted to it, right? You know, our, we should always have some sort of, uh, I don't want to call it testing, but some sort of measurement in the athlete's training so we can see, you know, I've given these exercises to this athlete because this is what I want them to improve on. And are those metrics actually improving or are they crashing? And if they're crashing, is it because, you know, this is a novel movement because there's different types of reactions. And if it's something super new to that athlete, they could actually go down a little bit before it swings back up. Or is it because you've just prescribed too much load and there's too much stress in other areas of their lives? Uh, so they don't have the resources to actually adapt to that program. But we need some form of measurement and, and to hold ourselves accountable, um, but also to you know evaluate our programs and are they effective? Are we screwing up? Um, you know, it, it's easy to give to write a program and full of fancy exercise and give it to an athlete. An athlete enjoys it, and we all assume that they have improved, but. You know, it's actually kind of exciting when an athlete doesn't improve because then you got to ask yourself, all right, why are they not improving? What, where do I need to go next? You know, when we, we look at our, our uh, exercise science books in, in university from our undergrads, you have that, that performance and time curve, right? And it flat lines. And then you see that little arrow where it shoots up again and there's a little asterisk steroids, right? Well, no, it's not steroids. What it is is you can keep driving adaptation as long as you're holding things back from that athlete and you have resources that you're going to and exercises you're going to later in that athlete's career just because you can do something don't don't necessarily do it because you might need it in an olympic year and if you've used all your bells and whistles and your tools and your tool belt and that athlete started to plateau in that olympic year well what do you do next you're hooped and so you know you got to monitor that athlete. Are they improving? And don't use everything. Like, keep things back. You know, just because you can use bands when you jump, you know, in accommodating resistance. With a, you know, first or second year university student who's still adapting to, you know, squatting and, and doing their bench pulls as a rower, well, just keep doing that. Don't pull out fancy bells and whistles, right? Velocity-based training. Like, I, I think intent is really important. Don't get me wrong here. But you know, pull it out when you need it and, you know, give them different constraints when you need it. Um, you know, as I've said, just because you can, don't think critically, like, do I need to? Right, because at the end of the day, like, why or where did this random four weeks um like this became like the gold standard, right? Where it's like you either train a four week blocks or a three week block with a break. And again, like this is what I was talking about. Like is, is probably going to be a, a my thoughts Monday rant for me. Like I don't get where that came from. Yeah. You want to hear a dumb thing I did is, you know, when I was coaching track and field, like I went through, did the coaching certifications that you do in Canada, like your level one, two, threes. And, you know, you learn about general prep, specific prep, competitive period. And, um, you know, there was a time, and this stays on 
people who listen to your podcast don't mention outside your podcast, but I would literally sit there with my spreadsheets and write down, all right, today we're in September, we're starting our base training. Okay, April 31st, we're gonna do 10 jumps from a short approach, 10 jumps from a medium approach, and you're gonna do 11 jumps from you know, a long approach. Well, how the hell do you know that that's what the hell he needs to do then? And how do you know that, you know, you should do a four-week block here and a three-week block here and, a, you know, a two-week block here? You don't. And, you know, it's just a simple way out. <laughs> and it's crazy, though, but we all sit there no matter what. Like, there's probably people that are listening to this right now that are probably either like Jay's insane and Dame is insane or they're like, wait a minute. Where did four weeks come from? Yeah, a lot of these things are path dependencies. We do them for reasons that no longer, you know, are valid. It's like the, I've got my computer in front of me. There's a keyboard staring at me. Well, the reason this keyboard is designed the way it is is not because it makes sense. It's because so typewriters don't jam. Well, who uses a typewriter anymore? And who uses a typewriter that has a tendency to jam anymore? Well, no one does. But yet we still use the same keyboard. A thousand percent. So I just think that, you know, like with some other things, there are situations that occur that for whatever reason, who knows why, we're just like, well, man, that sounds right. Okay, we'll do that. Yeah. Like, again, like just piggybacking off what you were saying, like with these women, like if they're still getting better and you're still moving forward, why do you have to change anything? Like, oh, if, if your yeah. training is so taxing on these people and i get it you do have to stress to elicit adaptation don't twist my words here people but like if your training is to the point that you have to change that much when they mm -hmm. go from the off season to the in season i guess maybe working in college basketball i'm a little jaded in this because we really don't have an off season they're always mm -hmm. practicing so it's just like a constant build up always but like, what do we need to change at such a dramatic level for other than like your own entertainment? No, I, I agree with that hundred percent. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you hundred percent. Another thing too, is that if you're, if you're changing things all the time, you know, you're using more and more exercises, you're using more and more of your tools, you're run out of tools at some point. And so, you know, as I said, like variability, I'm not saying variability is important. I'm saying variability is extremely important. And you got to keep some of that variability back for when you actually need it. Bingo. When you need it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it's very I, key. I love it, Dana. I love it. Listen, man, let me get you out of here on this. Where can people find out more of what you're doing and keep up to date with what's going on up there? Man, I, I'll be honest. I, I keep a fairly low profile. Um, but, you know, if anyone wants to get in contact with me, uh, you have my email. Um, I, do, I, I am on Twitter. I, I've actually purposely deleted all my social media. Uh, I ask myself, you know, what is adding value to my life? And actually, Twitter I, does add some value to my life because I get good journal article recommendations. So, you know, I'm on Twitter. I apologize. I'll, I'll post pictures of my dogs and hunting and stuff like that. Uh, but you can always get a hold of me on uh, email and feel free to share it. Uh, Twitter and you know I always love talking about training and sharing ideas with people um, and I'm sure you talk to Corey like he 
you know, we bounce ideas back and forth all the time. So the more people to bounce ideas off of, the better. Awesome, brother. Truly appreciate your time, Dana. This is great. Thank you so much for being with us today, and uh, we'll be in touch real soon, brother. Yeah, no problem. Have a great one. You too, man. Cheers. Awesome. Bye. And a huge thanks to Dana Agar Newman for spending the time with us today. Guys, just some open, honest, candid sharing and really some different ideas, you know, and, and thinking about it in this way. If it ain't broke, why fix it, right? And Dana seems to be having some great success with the athletes he gets to work with when it comes to evaluating and monitoring and moving them forward, but not necessarily just flipping the exercises to flip the exercises. I can't thank Dana enough for spending the time with us today and being so open, honest, and candid with his sharing. I think this is sensational stuff. And Dana, keep up the great work, man. I, I love what you're doing. I love these ideas and these principles that you're practicing out there. This is sensational stuff. And as always, guys, if you did enjoy the talk, please share it through the social media outlet of your choice, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it may be. As always, we are just trying to get the best information out there to all the great coaches that we can. And as always, guys, thank you for everything that you do for us here at Central Virginia Sport Performance. We will be back next week with another awesome guest. We will see you there.